Davos Confidential will get started after a short message from this week's sponsor. Today's episode is presented by Goldman Sachs. Today, sustainable finance is no longer on the sidelines, but increasingly core to a company's business. That's why Goldman Sachs is targeting $750 billion in sustainable finance growth themes by 2030. Learn more at gs.com slash sustainable finance. From the top of the beautiful Alpine mountain of Davos during the World Economic Forum, you're listening to Davos Confidential. Hello and welcome to this edition of Davos Confidential. Just to give you a sense of where we are, we are four people standing on the side of a street, uh, a narrow street, hoping that it won't be too loud because that's the way things are going to have to be over the next few days here at Davos, just doing things as they come. I'm Rim Mumtaz and I'm joined today by Florian Eder, who is a Davos veteran. Hi, Florian. Hi, Rim. Hi. Um, and by Stephen Brown, our editor-in-chief. Hi, Stephen. Hello, how are you doing? So let me start today um, by getting a sense of, you know, how did Monday go for all of you? I mean, I can start my Monday when pretty well. I, go, I went for a hike this morning up uh, the, to the Strelerberg, which is at 2,000 meters or something like that from the Schatzalp. Uh, that's just a, a walk of uh, maybe a little half an hour and then back. Uh, that was pretty nice to get a sense of where we are and it's most beautiful here. That's uh, what we tend to forget and tend to not see over the next days because uh, the program is going to be very busy and the conference is going to get very busy. So uh, I took the chance this morning, at least Monday morning, to get out of there uh, and make the best of the opportunity to be in a very beautiful surrounding, actually. And Stephen? My main achievement today has just been getting here, actually, and also not falling on my backside in the ice. So I'm pretty proud of myself on two counts. You know, what really struck me today is this dichotomy that you see walking around Davos. It's my first time here. And just walking, getting to the Congress Center to get, you know, everything going. I was struck by seeing locals clearly getting off the ski slopes with their skis and their snowboards and, you know, a slot kind of dressed in a more business-like way and trying not to fall on our backsides and trying to get to where we're ne we need to go and then trying to find food for lunch. That was not easy at all. So word to the wise, whoever's listening to us, if you are in Davos and you are not staying in a hotel, be prepared. Find those supermarkets because they will have the cafeterias that will serve you food all day long. All right, so now moving ahead and let's talk about Tuesday. Tuesday is going to be a big, big day for Davos. Right, Florian? I would think so. Tuesday is the is the day where Donald Trump, the U.S. president, is back here after two years only. I think he's uh, he's the first U.S. president in a while, at least, uh, who's come here twice in uh, within one term. And it is, of course, the day where uh, there is some uh, something happening at home for him. It's impeachment day in the Senate, so I think it's uh, his timing is pretty good, pretty clever, honestly. Eleventh. Uh, is, is it a diversion? I mean, you know, you can, the, on, on two counts. One is. Uh, they may continue their witch hunt, as he likes to call it, at home. Uh, the president is going abroad as the chief salesman of uh, of America, make America great again. He's meeting all kinds of people. Well, not all kinds of people. I think I think we we know that three bilaterals are on his agenda. It's not overloaded, let's say, but still. And uh, first a lunch and then a dinner uh, with different groups of business people here. And then the second thing is that actually, uh, timing-wise, it's pretty clever for him. He speaks at 11.30 local time in Switzerland. It's 5.30 Eastern time, as so in Washington. 
So the news shows in the morning will obviously open uh, with with President Trump speaking uh, and not anybody else. So I think for him it could have been worse. And are we expecting him to talk about the famous trade war with China? What are we expecting of him? He may talk about that, but I think uh, the relationship with China is going to be very high on the agenda anyway, because I think the second most controversial or even possibly the first most controversial person in town tomorrow is going to be the um, founder of Huawei, the uh, Chinese telecoms group, Ren Shengfei, and he's speaking on a panel tomorrow. We've been told that um, he's keeping a low profile, so we don't know if he's going to be meeting any European or even American leaders. That would be pretty difficult etiquette I think we can agree but it's a super interesting moment because Huawei as I think like few other companies in the world at the moment kind of epitomizes the geopolitical struggle between United States Europe and China in this aspect on on technology and 5G a lot of countries around Europe including most notably Germany and the UK are at a point where they have to choose whether they allow Huawei into their 5G technology yeah Angela Merkel kind of seems to have given Huawei a little bit of a a PR victory last week in, a, in an interview with the FT when she said that um, no one should be excluded from 5G um, technology infrastructure in Europe. Um, so is Ren coming here at a time, you know, to sort of crow victory? Um, that seems that'll be a little unwise. So I think there's going to be an awful lot of attention on what he says and what comes up in that particular panel. It's interesting what you said about him being probably the most controversial person here. Florian, do you really think that this this lot here at Davos really... Is there anyone that they find controversial? Is there anyone they won't touch? It's very interesting. Uh, I, I remember uh, having been here two years ago when Trump was here for the first time and people announced uh, before that they would walk out of the room because Trump just before had said something nasty about, uh, about African countries, I think. And of course, nothing happened at all. He got very polite applause. And the same happened last year with, uh, I'm not making, uh, you know, I'm not linking the two. Or not, or, well, I am. Uh, uh, when, when Greta Thunberg came here, the climate activist, which had, uh, who had, you know, very controversial and very heavy uh, messages for this group here of the, the global elite. And of course, everybody applauded uh, very, very politely, very politely. Um, and if you look at, you know, I just happened to look at uh, Joe Kayser's Siemens uh, CEO Twitter account. Even he, uh, uh, in his bio, says he's a promoter of, very, of inclusive growth and of green stuff and all kind of things. So how controversial and how aggressive do you have to be uh, that somebody intervenes and says this is, you know, either bullshit or, or, or just not applauded, applaud at least. Uh, that's going to be interesting this, this week. You know, I wonder if the measure of controversy for the group here in Davos isn't how much one person can actually affect their bottom line. I mean, is that really the question at the end of the day? Is that all that matters? I think it's certainly a good question. I mean, uh, it does seem that the overall um, argument over sustainability, it's turned from a debate into an admission that this is a crisis, seems to be. I think the um, moves made last week by BlackRock, a huge financial company, um, where they talked about specifically um, avoiding, you know, um, a predominance of um, fossil fuel investments. Yeah? That kind of thing shows that fa the financial world is taking this extremely seriously. So, you know, money dictates the way, unfortunately. So I think actually Greta Thunberg has probably brought about a popular support for this kind of movement, which is going to change the way people do business. Will it impact the bottom line? I think it's the other way around. Now, if you're not with this movement, the feeling seems to be that will affect your bottom line. That is actually very interesting. I saw a very nice report uh, looking at share prices over the past year, uh, and it seems that it's actually a very wise business decision to align yourself with the green movement and say and uh, and say that you know your company... Uh, 
actually is a green one or is thinking about uh, how to fight against climate change in its own uh, realm uh, and that pays off because shareholders like it so it's not just uh, uh, you know it's not just a decision whether or not to do it but but it often pays off yeah. and I think one of the big questions is um, how do you show in your accounts how do you prove credibly that you are actually doing this um, you know that you are doing anything uh, to sort of clean up your act and I think there's a big movement at the moment from shareholders and other stakeholders um, to get companies to actually show something in their accounts that demonstrate they're taking action so, yeah. so it's not just greenwash yeah this is the thing there are two things to me that stand out it's one that talking about or admitting that there is a problem and now they need to actually you know have their actions live up to their words is great it's a bit too late but it's great and now people are like okay there needs to be accountability you need to actually deliver and Perhaps, you know, a factor in all of this that is maybe not spoken enough about is the effect of millennials. You were talking about, you know, st- you know, shareholders and how it's good for the bottom line. A lot of the millennials are now asking their, the companies that they buy from, because they're people who have disposable income, they want to make sure that the companies they buy from are actually socially responsible, are actually climate aware and you know they want to see it on their websites and they're asking for that accountability and perhaps now these two worlds are sort of meeting and I think it'll be interesting by the end of this week to see how much we can measure this kind of green turn if we can call it that in the world of Davos. Thanks Stephen, thank you Florian. A few of us had a chance to catch up with some of the VIPs as they were coming in on Monday. That's coming up right after this message from our sponsor. A message from Goldman Sachs. Today, sustainable finance is no longer on the sidelines, but increasingly core to a company's business. Goldman Sachs is focused on the dual themes of climate transition and inclusive growth to help its clients across all sectors navigate the transition to an inclusive, low-carbon economy. So what is inclusive growth? It entails supporting sustainable communities and drawing on innovative investing partnerships to provide more access and opportunity. And climate transition? It's when industries adapt their business model in response to a low-carbon economy. Goldman Sachs is committed to helping their clients position themselves for a future in which sustainability is core to all industries and integrated across markets. They will achieve this vision by doing what they do best, invest, finance, advise, and innovate to drive sustainable finance strategies that accelerate positive change. That's why Goldman Sachs is targeting $750 billion from nine sustainable finance growth areas by 2030. What are they? Learn more at gs.com slash sustainable finance. Now it's time to bring you a few interviews from some of the World Economic Forum's top participants. I'm producer Christina Gonzalez, and my colleague Ryan Heath had the chance to sit down with Tim Ryan, who's senior partner and chairman at PwC US, a leading global consultancy. Joining me now is Tim Ryan from PwC, and we're going to talk workforce and workforce transformation. Tim, what is bringing you to Davos? I mean, aside from the obvious, what's the message you're going to deliver to all the other corporates and government people that you're meeting this week? So we we have this unique privilege when we come here to Davos to meet with a lot of our clients. So I'll do dozens and dozens of client meetings where we'll talk about what's going on in their business and the big topics around upskilling workforce, climate, diversity, no doubt will be on their mind and the overall economic state. I'll also meet with just a number of the strategic partners and want to hear what's on their minds in terms of where the world is going. And, and then also just kind of hear where the general pulse is of the world. Like, this is a great opportunity to hear the general pulse of the world. This is my fourth year. Each of the last three years when I get on that plane going home, 
I'm, I'm blown away by just what I'll say the messages I've heard and it without a doubt is a big data point into our strategy how we advise clients and how we run our firm luckily this will only come out yeah. after you launch your right. CEO survey right. but was there any key sort of findings that that you think people are going to have to take on board this yeah week? so our CEO survey for the second year in a row is going to show a record decline and CEO optimism around overall global growth. Which, mm -hmm. So last year was a record decline, and this is another record decline. And it's at very, very low levels in terms mm -hmm. of optimism around global growth. And now, is that China-driven? I was going to say, it's not a surprise when you think about trade, when you think about Brexit, protectionism, mm -hmm. and the like. It's not a surprise that people don't feel great about global growth. Mm -hmm. But here's the conundrum. When you look at our individual clients, and I, this, these are my one-on-one -on -one meetings over the course of a year, mm -hmm most feel good about their ability to grow revenues. Mm -hmm. So one question is about global growth, yep. not great. One is about their own individual confidence, and that's at still high levels. It took a yeah. small decline in our survey, but for US CEOs, yeah. they went from 91% last year confidence in their 12-month revenue growth cycle. It's 79, so it's down, but it's mm -hmm. still very high. And so what it tells me is CEOs are adapting. Like they, they know they can't control the global economy, but they can control their business, which is that that's the segue to me in yep. the workforce, right? So the things that are under their control, talent, skills of development, innovation, mm -hmm. they're doing a pretty good job at yep. We always want to do better, but I think that's what drives the, the optimism in their revenue growth. Yeah, And I think, I mean, another yeah. way to look at it is CEOs are dealing with a much more complex environment. They're yes. engaged yeah. in so many other yeah. Yeah. ways that yeah. wasn't required from a CEO 20, 30, well, it's 50 funny years say, ago. It's funny you should say that, Ryan. I was, last week I was in front of a group of CEOs and I said, with all, in, in including several former CEOs, and I said, with all due respect to formers, the job today is harder than it's ever been. And it's for all the reasons you said, and then I'll layer on, like multiple stakeholders, You've got every element of society taking a look at you. You've got 24-7 just reach with social media and the like. And the world is, is so different today than it was 20 years ago. So I, I do think part of what they're dealing with is just a very, very complex job yeah. these days. And I don't know if it's trust specifically, but it says yeah. something about that overall environment. When you were just right. talking now, right. it reminded me of like when you hear people speak about their member of Congress. Right. They're quite like their member of Congress. Right. And they think collectively yes. it's a disaster yes. and they don't like it at all. Yes. And it's a bit the same, the message there with the economy. Yeah. Like they understand and trust what's close to them. And that's then the rest point. they think, hang on, like, yeah. get me out of here. Yeah, and I, I think that's right. And this goes to the CEO survey. The other big theme, that the top five issues that are out there that, that CEOs are in their mind, the top one for the second year running is cyber. That's no surprise mm -hmm. just given how, how broad that issue is. But the other four are all things that they can't control. Mm -hmm. It's trade, it's geopolitical uncertainty, it's protectionism. So this this uncertainty that exists in this world does get into the psyche of how do I feel about the world, mm -hmm. no doubt about it. Yeah. But interesting, yeah. when we compare to the WEF's own global risk right. report, where I know it's not the short-term issues, but on the long term, they yeah. say their respondents, the top five issues for them were climate. Yes. I'm a little suspicious in that 44% of the respondents were from Europe, but right. still it's striking, right. like it's all going right. in one direction. Right. But that is a bit of a gap between right. what your CEOs are telling you. Yeah, so it's funny, climate is in our list, but it's not a top five. And, and you, so you try to reconcile that. And even for US CEOs, it's not in the top five, but it's, but it's in the list. I think the reason is the here and now of the uncertainty is so overwhelming. That's mm -hmm. kind of what drives it, those up to the top of the list. Yeah, sure. A trade yeah. war is a bit yeah. more immediate. Right. Unless you're Australia. Yeah, yeah that's course. right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. koalas are burning. It's terrible. Yeah. Um, no, and no. 
on general workforce transformation, what do you think are the, the big things people are going to be dealing with in the next 12 months? What we're seeing without a doubt is that almost every company has some type of upskilling, and I'm using upskilling in a very broad sense. Almost every company has some type of upskilling initiative going on. And that's everything from not only helping people understand AI, but it's also basic skill sets where you're learning automations and building basic bots. Yep. And and so it's oftentimes people hear about upskilling, they think you're gonna go upskill and build a team of AI experts from somebody who has basic knowledge. That's not what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing is that, that companies are, if an employee is at a starting point, they're taking them 10%. If they're at 10%, they're taking the 20%. So it's this continuous journey. I think you're gonna see more and more of that without a doubt. Why do I believe that? Number one, we're in a, we're in a tight labor market. The second reason is companies are beginning to understand there there is a payback for upskilling. The, the third thing is societally, it, the, investing in your employees is the right thing to do. The, the day and age where, where you're going to let 5,000 people go who don't have the skill sets and either go buy, buy them or, or try to figure out another way to get them, they're gone. And if I can, Ryan, i just share with you. So at PwC, we, we have a unique privilege of serving hundreds and hundreds and thousands of clients. But we also are a business ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so what we did three years ago, and this is in the PwC US, we kind of said, what do we want to do on employee upskilling? And we embarked on a strategy that is now in its third year, at the beginning of its third year, called mm -hmm. Your Tomorrow. And what we did is we went to our employees and we said, we'll listen to you. We understand that your job relevance is on your mind. Now, granted, these are white collar workers, mm -hmm. but even but on no one's their minds, now. that's the point, even, even when you look at these highly skilled professionals, highly educated, they're not exempt. They're worried about it. And we heard that loud and clear. And I will admit, that was a little bit of like, wow, wow. And what we did is we, we launched an entire program that's at the heart of our talent strategy now, where we're teaching all of our people new skills. Mm -hmm. and, and now the skills you're being taught depends on your job. But there were fears around the table. If we make this investment, will they leave? And part of what we, I need to get my leadership team comfortable with, yeah, they may. But if we make the investment, they may not leave because they feel like we're taking care of them. Interesting. And they're going to be a lot more grateful if they do leave. They won't great, have a bad word to go. say about great you. Great point. Great point. So it's funny. I can I tell a quick story. So keep in mind, we're now in the third, just beginning of the third year. I was in Houston two weeks ago. The CFO of a major Fortune 150 company, mm -hmm. she said to me, she said, there's something wrong with your talent. She goes, your talent is amazing. They have more tech acumen than anybody I've seen. She goes, I'm hiring as many as I can. <laughs> and I said, good for you. Because yeah. you know what? There is something different. I'm glad you're seeing it because we're now in our mm -hmm. third year of investing in our people. I went back to our office. I met with our leadership team. I said, they're hiring as much of our talent. And we should be okay with that. Because the reality is what we are seeing statistically is our retention rate of that talent we're investing in is actually better. We believe we're heading to a world where upskilling in employees will be a required employee benefit, mm -hmm. like healthcare and 401k. The surprising thing that we've seen is by teaching our people new skills, they're reimagining 20% of their job, meaning the job is not going away, 20% of the job is being automated. And then we're finding ways to deploy those people, fill that other 20% of the time, build capacity, frankly, give time to invest in wellness, physical, mental mm -hmm. well-being, what we call be well, work well. So I tell people it's rare that you find something that's great for your clients, it's great for your people, and then by extension, it's great for the firm. And that's, that's kind of what we've seen. Thank you so much, Tim. It's yeah. been a pleasure. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate it. And now, 
I had the chance to talk transatlantic relations, trade, China, and even a little impeachment with Stuart Eisenstadt. He has had a long career serving in the U.S. government, starting under Jimmy Carter and serving as the U.S. ambassador to the EU in the 1990s and as Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade at the International Trade Administration. He is a 25-year veteran of the World Economic Forum, and that's where our conversation began. So, Christina, I think maybe the biggest change that's occurred, and that is the whole notion of the role of corporations in society. Now, to his credit, at the very outset, Klaus Schwab started the concept, which was unheard of at the time, of stakeholder capitalism, meaning that corporations had a greater responsibility than simply the bottom line for their own shareholders. That's been heightened in the last year or so. And that's the theme of this Davos. But what sort of concrete actions can people really expect to come from the next few days? I think what they can expect is a sort of coming together around the concept that corporations do have this broader responsibility and then to see how it's implemented. And one of the things that I think the forum is trying to do now is develop measurements of which corporations are going to be implementing and complying. And there will be uh, opportunities this year and particularly next to try to measure how companies have abided by these general principles. Can you give a few examples of what these measures would be? Yeah, the measures would be things like this. To what extent are you considering no use of slave or forced labor? To what extent are you implementing the Paris Accords on climate change and developing your own footprint for climate change and reducing your emissions? To what extent are you treating your employees uh, properly? To what extent are you concerned about the health of your supply chains? So these are, these are sort of potentially concrete measurements and do you expect that to be well-received then? I think that there's a really growing consensus uh, for that, yes. Also, I think one of the things you'll see here is really, if not the clash, at least the competition between China and the U.S. One of the things that, that I've noticed over the years, and this is again a dramatic change, this had been a forum, Christina, that was dominated by U.S and European corporations. That's changed dramatically. There are, frankly, fewer U European corporations. There are still a lot, huge number of American corporations. But the representation, both at the government and company level, of Chinese and of Indian companies is dramatic. You brought up China, and I was just hoping if you could briefly give us a sense of whether or not the US and EU specifically are on the same page at this point when it comes to China? This is a very important question. The U.S.-China deal that was uh, recently announced is certainly a positive in the sense that it's a pause in a trade war, but it's a very, very unique and I think not necessarily good trade agreement to duplicate because trade agreements that I participated in, they've always been designed to lower trade barriers on both sides, to lower tariffs, to promote the free trade of goods and services, 
based on market demand by removing barriers to trade. This one is entirely different. It's a managed trade agreement. The president's keeping on all, or virtually all, of the existing $360 billion of tariffs on Chinese goods coming into the U.S. China is keeping on tariffs on U.S. imports of over 50%. Those aren't going away. The one positive thing from EU-U.S. relations, which have been really fraught because the president made a fundamental decision in tackling China alone, I know for a fact that on a particular Saturday, early in the administration, when the EU foreign minister and trade minister came over, uh, Malmstrom, for example, and the Chinese minister meeting with Mr. Lighthizer, they anticipated that that meeting was going to be a collaborative effort to tackle these fundamental Chinese problems and barriers, which indeed affect not just U.S. companies, but European and Japanese companies as well. And that united effort would have been, I think, much more successful than these unilateral efforts. Instead, what was done at that very meeting, Lighthizer announced unilateral tariffs against European products, aluminum and steel, and Japanese products. So instead of uniting Europe with the U.S. or Japan with the U.S. against China, we divided ourselves. Now, if there's a positive outcome to this latest trade deal, it is just after it was announced. Mr. Lighthizer met again with the Chinese. We're now talking about two and a half years later to enlist them to go after these embedded structural problems that China presents with state-owned enterprises with huge subsidies to see if they will join the U.S. in an action in the World Trade Organization to try to ban them, or at least to amend the rules. And sticking with trade, can you give us a sense at this point of where things stand between the U.S. and the EU when it comes to trade? Because as best as I understand it, President Donald Trump and Ursula von der Leyen, the commission president, are supposed to meet here in Davos and trade is supposed to be at the top of that agenda. Can you give us a sense of what people could expect from that sort of conversation? Well, I think it's important to step back. I'll answer it specifically, but to step back, we are, and I'm not exaggerating, at the lowest point in U.S.-European Union relations in my lifetime. And what makes you say that specifically? Because the president has called the European Union an enemy. Uh, he said the EU was created to be a competitor with the U.S. and that it was as much an adversary as China. That's his attitude. Instead of enlisting the EU as a partner with us, to deal with China, he imposed unilateral tariffs against European goods and divided us. And he has given almost no EU-US summits, which were a regular thing under previous presidents, Republican and Democrat. There have basically been none. Now, belatedly, there's an effort to try to enlist the EU to help us with China. So that's a positive thing. Also, there was an effort last July 2019 at the height of tensions between the U.S. and the EU when Juncker came over and met with the president and they announced the effort at an attempt at some sort of free trade agreement, transatlantic 
free, free trade agreement. But that's gone nowhere, and in part, I have to say the EU is partly to blame for this, because the U.S. can't enter into a free trade agreement with Europe without agriculture being included, and Europe doesn't want agriculture included. In addition, the administration has withdrawn from a number of agreements which were crucial to the European Union and on which previous administrations cooperated. For example, the nuclear deal with Iran, the Paris Climate Change Accords, the Intermediate Nuclear Force Agreements with, with China. All of this creates a backdrop in which the kind of meeting that the President's having with the present, new President Commission comes with a cloud. I hope he can clear it up. I promoted for decades the notion of a true transatlantic free trade arrangement with no tariffs, with uh, mutual recognition of our regulations. Uh, this is crucial. So hopefully he'll start it, but it certainly has a long way to go and it's taken steps backward. Some people would argue that this isn't necessarily a characteristic of the Trump administration so much as the direction that U.S.-EU relations had been heading for a bit of time now. Would you agree with that, or do you think that this could change depending on how the presidential election works out at the end of this year? I very much disagree. I think that under Republican and Democratic presidents, the U.S.-EU relationship was crucial. I mean, the European Union is the greatest collection of free market democratic countries in the world. We turn to them when we want to impose sanctions on Russia, uh, when we want to have agreements with Iran. And if, if the EU hadn't imposed its own sanctions along with ours, Iran would have never gone to the bargaining table without question. I mean, I've been deeply involved in the, uh, in the JCPOA. I've headed a task force on Iran for five years. They are our principal allies, and yet this administration has been treating them as enemies, as opponents. I desperately hope that will change. So I certainly disagree with any notion that this just continues previous policy because it was not the policy of previous Republican or Democratic presidents. And European leaders, Macron, Angela Merkel, and Boris Johnson seem eager to salvage what they can with the nuclear deal at this point. Do you think that that is possible, given the circumstances? I don't. The Europeans have shown themselves totally unable to come up with an alternative to keep Iran in the agreement, and that's because of the strength of the dollar. If companies have to choose between being sanctioned by the U.S. and investing in a tiny Iran, which is, I say tiny, as an economic entity, they'll avoid investing to avoid sanctions every time, and that's what's happened. And now that's led Iran to begin to break out of the nuclear agreement, and that in turn ironically, is le leading Europe to more closely align with the U.S., because now the European countries are saying, who were part of the JCPOA, France, Germany, the U.K., we now are going to take Iran to the dispute resolution mechanism under the nuclear agreement to see if we can get them to comply. One issue that we haven't really touched on much in our podcast is that of the impeachment of President Donald Trump. And I'm just curious if you think that this is an issue that is top of mind for people as they're meeting this week. I would say it's sort of an underlying theme. It's a, it's a cloud 
uh, over it, and with the president making the decision to come here, he'll be coming just as the impeachment trial starts. Uh, but no one wants to talk about it very publicly. It's certainly a matter of private discussion and will be enhanced when the president comes, and I'll be surprised if during either his speech or his uh, press statements or his tweets, as the impeachment trial starts, he doesn't go to some length to talk about how he views it as a hoax and so forth. So it unavoidably will become part of it, but I think everyone hopes that really it will be sidelined. That's not the purpose of this forum. That was highlights of a conversation I had with Stuart Eisenstadt. And that's all the time we have on this episode of Davos Confidential. Reem and the rest of our Davos crew will be back tomorrow to bring you their insights into what is expected to be a big day here at the World Economic Forum. I'm Christina Gonzalez in Davos. Thanks for listening. <laughs>